Good morning. When, uh, first of all, the, our scripture reading today is Romans, we're continuing that, chapter 9, verses 19 through 26. And when Matt asked me to read the scripture this morning, I read it through a time and then a second time, and it struck me that a couple of the verses in here were, seemed to be really thick. And then as I thought about some more, I thought, well, maybe it's just me that's really thick. Uh, so I read it a couple, few more times, and with Julia's help, I think it finally started to make a little bit of sense. So we'll read it to this morning, and then uh, Matt will kind of proceed to tell me how I had no clue as to what I was reading to begin with. If you're able, if you'll please stand, and we'll read uh, Romans chapter 9, 19 through 26. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be be called sons of the living God. Would you pray with me before we tackle this passage? Let's pray. Father, before we begin to really look at this honestly difficult, challenging passage from your word, we just, with one mind and one voice, we cry out to you for help. Help us to understand, help us to accept the truths of you and reality as you have designed it and your word. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and plainly and boldly. Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. Please give us soft hearts, moldable hearts, teachable hearts. Lord, help us to remember all the things that we know to be true about your word and you and reality as we look at this one particular passage. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, would guide us into truth. And I just pray for each individual that you brought here that you would be whispering to their souls through this. Because I know that folks have come in with a whole variety of different concerns and preoccupations and just different items on their plate. Your word is sharp. It's a double-edged sword and cuts right down to the point. And I pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, please use me as your vessel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are still in Romans chapter 9. I had a friend call me this week. I always post on our website a recap of the sermon and then some additional too, especially on this chapter as there's just so many questions. Um, There's really, it would take all year to work through this and address all the questions. And honestly, I'm not even capable of addressing completely and fully all the questions that spring out of Romans chapter 9, but 
I had a friend, he saw that I made another post on our blog about uh, this passage about election and predestination and free will, all these big scary topics, and he just wanted to see how it was going. He knew I'd been in chapter 9 for a while with you folks, and he said, well, how's it going? I said, well, I don't, I don't know how to gauge that. I mean, you know, I'm doing the best I can, and nobody has tossed me out of the church yet. I mean, so so far, so good. Uh, one but one thing that stood out in our conversation that I hadn't thought about too clearly, one really good thing that has come from studying this together is, at least in terms of what I know of, you guys are really engaging your minds in the Word as we work through this. I've heard of so many people say that God's Word is now the topic of conversation over their breakfast table, dinner table, on the way home, um, and that's good. That's really good. Uh, that's part of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is really grappling with the divine. And it's hard work. And I just, I want to thank you. You have stuck with me really well. And uh, I assume that you'll continue to stick with me really well as we work through this. Um, some people saw I put on Facebook yesterday, if you think that chap- uh, verses 1 through 18 were tough, Wait until we start getting into verses 19 and on. Um, it, Paul just keeps turning the screw, keeps tightening this thing down. And so we'll work through it. We'll keep working through it. And, um, and I invite you, I invite the discussion. I invite you to engage with each other and with me uh, about these things. I am not a humble man. I'm a prideful man, but I'm humble enough to confess that I don't know it all. And I need you to study because I may be off in any passage. So the responsibility is ours. Okay, deal? All right. So I, we're too far along for me to recap all of Romans every Sunday. So I'll just recap last week, basically. We have come through Romans 8 and 9, which um, Paul is just trumpeting this frankly, just extreme vision of God's sovereignty. He's very frank about it, and it's extreme. In Romans 8, it seemed great and positive. He, you know, controls and works all things together for the good of those who love him. Nothing can separate us from his love. But then he gets down into the uh, basement of this idea in Romans 9 and really starts to inspect, what does this mean that our God is God and that he is sovereign? Especially in light of how he dispenses his mercy and compassion and his wrath, his love and his rejection. Is he also sovereign over that, or is he at our mercy with how he dispenses those things? Well, Paul has come down hard on his sovereignty on these things, which raises all kinds of objections. I'm sure you guys have objections and questions that I probably hadn't even thought of yet. But Paul addresses two big ones, and last week we addressed the first one. Does this mean that God is unjust? That's what we talked about last week. Um, And of course, Paul's response is, no, he is just. And this sovereign selection, this control over salvation is a deep part of what it means to be God in the first place. And we talked about how he's already set the stage in Romans for the fact that left on our own, none of us choose God. Left on our own, all of us choose to harden ourselves. So it's mercy when he plucks us up from that. Uh, we're not, humanity is not banging down the door to get into heaven to spend eternity with God. 
Humanity is tripping over themselves to get away from the one true God to try to set themselves up as their own gods. So that was last week. We can't get back into all that. Today, he sets up another objection, and I think that this one might get even more to the heart of some of our discomfort with this passage. So we're just going to take it verse by verse, and honestly, I think that we are only going to get through the first three verses. Um, because it's like um, Tom said, it's thick. I don't think I've ever heard anybody describe verses that way, but it's accurate. So, what is this objection that he tackles today? In verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God's sovereignty even includes who receives mercy and who does not, then surely that must negate our responsibility in it. And therefore, how could he hold us responsible for anything? So if God is in control, if he makes choices, then that must render our choices obsolete and meaningless. That's the objection. And I I wonder, I suspect, if that comes close to some of the discomfort that you have experienced as we've worked our way through this. Um, It comes close to my deepest discomfort with it. And rest assured, you're not alone in your discomfort with this. I struggle with this. But this is, as best I can tell, what his word is saying. And note, too, I just want to re—I want to mention this again. Paul's really good. He's a good communicator. He's really good at anticipating people's objections to what he's saying. And so he'll throw out there, I bet you're thinking this. Here's why you're wrong. And his perceived objections really shed a lot of light on what he's just been saying. For instance, here, you know, we just read this difficult passage last week that ended with verse 18. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And we want, we want so bad to bend that, twist that, to say God has mercy on those who he he knows are going to turn to him. And God hardens the people that he knows are going to turn away from him. But if that's what he was saying, why would he feel it necessary to address an objection about our responsibility. It would have already been addressed. I'm just throwing that out there as a reminder. He means what he's saying, and he's willing to address the objections of it. So, this is sort of the big one. Let me tell you how I would respond. Okay, I'm not a Holy Spirit-inspired writer of Scripture, um, which is a good thing for everybody, I think. But here's how I would respond if I were Paul at this point, and how I would respond if you came to me with that question. Okay, the first thing I would want to do is assure you there's balance in the Bible. If you read the Bible as a whole, there's balance. Yes, it presents God as God, sovereign. But it also presents people as responsible, free. It presents God as in control, but it also presents people as in control of their decisions. They have free will. And Paul likes to quote scripture, and I would, I would point you to scripture too. Just think about Adam and Eve. God created them, and he put them in the garden, and he gave them all kinds of things, including a choice. There's a tree I don't want you to eat from, but you're free to choose. And they chose And clearly that choice had meaning because there was consequences. 
You can look all through the, um, the early books of the Old Testament, the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all, all those areas, where God gives his people all these rules and pointers for how to live. Why would he give all those rules and pointers for how to live if it really didn't make any difference and have any meaning whether people obeyed them or not? If there were no free will, we wouldn't need pointers. We would just be robotic. So there's balance through the scripture. Look at the wisdom literature, the Proverbs and Psalms. Read Psalms. Read how David is pouring out his heart in Psalms. That is not the sound of a robot. That is the sound of a man who is free, who has decisions, who has challenges that have real meaning. Look through Proverbs and you'll, you'll see all this wisdom God's trying to give us so that we can live in our freedom. And you'll see a balance within Proverbs. There's in uh, Proverbs 16, there's uh, two verses that basically say our plans, man's plans belong to him, but the outcome belongs to the Lord. So there's both realities even in some of our Proverbs. God's in control, yet we're free. The prophets. God clearly knows what's going to happen as he talks to the prophets. And yet at the same time, he calls the people to make decisions. So the people have meaningful choices to make, meaningful decisions. They're both true. God's in control, yet we are free and responsible. You read Jesus, what he's had to say. In one breath, he says, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him to me. It is impossible for you to go to Jesus unless the Father draws you to Jesus. And then the next breath, he says, come to me. Both realities are present. You see, we think it has to be either or. Either God's in control or we are free and we have responsibility. It cannot be both. In our, in our little brains, it cannot be both. But the Bible presents it as both and. All throughout Scripture. But we can't get our minds around that. There's a really helpful book that I have been trying to get my hands on. I own it, but I can't find it. And I have to assume God doesn't want me to have it for this sermon. He wants me to wrestle through this on my own, I guess. But it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And the whole book is a meditation on this. If God's in control, what's the point of evangelism? And it's by a guy named J.I. Packer. If anybody has it, can I borrow it? Because I really could use it. But he, he lays out a really helpful um, parallel to this phenomenon of there being two things that we know are true— If you're honest with yourself, you know that this has to be true. You know God has to be in control. But you also know that this has to be true. You know that our decisions have meaning and we're free. But they just don't seem like they should be able to be true at the same time. Well, that's not the only thing like that. That's called an antinomy or an antinomy. Clearly, I don't really know what I'm talking about when I can't even pronounce it. I'm getting this from J.I. Packer. It's sort of like a paradox but it's a little bit different. A paradox is, a a good example of a paradox, if I were to say, I lie all the time. That's a paradox, because if that statement is true, then it's false. If I tell you I lie all the time, if that statement's true, then that's not a lie, and it makes the statement itself false. That's a paradox, okay? Everybody with me? You guys are like, this is starting to feel like school. I stopped thinking promptly at graduation and vowed never to do it again. 
So this isn't actually a paradox. This is an, I'm going to pronounce it antinomy. An antinomy is when there are two things that are absolutely, certainly true. And even though the fact that they're both true at the same time ref- flies in the face of everything that we think, and th- that we think that they should not be able to be true at the same time, they are. And we just have to accept it. Now, there's something else that's like that, okay? And it's light. The very light that we're using right now to be able to see each other is an antinomy. Scientists don't understand light. Things should only be able to be either a wave or a particle. But they should not be able to be both at the same time. And yet light, the scientists are certain it's a particle and it's a wave. And they don't know how that can be. So all they knew to do was just slap a name on it so that they could move forward. And it's, they call it a photon. Because they don't know. They don't understand how. So, God being sovereign and our being free, it's not the only thing that we can't make sense of as humans. <laughs> but I think that we need to accept it. This is reality. Okay, so that's how I would answer the objection. All that was just a roundabout way of showing you how. That's what I would say. There's balance. No, no, no. It's not as bad as it seems. There's balance. But man, that is not the way Paul answers it. He actually is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is actually scripture. And listen to how he responds to this objection. So the objection in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It's a good, it's a good point. Verse 20, his response. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He, he like rebukes the questioner. I would never take that approach. But he does. And since it's a valid objection, I think, if you're really thinking about this, you have to wonder. Since it's a valid objection, and since there really is more balance to be had in the Bible, there must be some specific reason he responds with a rebuke here. So that's sort of what I want to get at today. Why does he respond this way? He could have released a lot of pressure here. If he would have talked about the balance, but he doesn't talk about the balance. He keeps tightening this screw down further. God is God. God is sovereign. Makes it really difficult for me because I see you guys looking at me and you're like, what? Antinomy? Photons? What is he talking about? So there must be a reason that he responds this way. And I'm reminded of, you remember in the Christmas story? You know, it's true, it's history. It's not like a bedtime story. But God comes to Zechariah and he comes to Mary and he, with angels and he tells them both pretty crazy things are going to happen. He comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the Messiah. I know you're a virgin, but it's going to happen. And he goes to Zechariah and says, you guys are really old, but you're going to have a baby. And he's going to be a prophet named John the Baptist who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Okay, so put yourself in their positions. You'd have some questions. Now, Mary asks a question, and Zechariah asks a question. Mary, she asks her question, and she gets a gentle answer. 
Zechariah gets struck with muteness. He can't talk anymore after he asks his question. So what's the difference between these two questioners? If you'll remember, Mary hears all this and she says, how is this going to happen? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll have a child. She's like, okay. Zechariah says, how can I know this is true? I don't know. And the angel's like, mute. (laughs) There's a big difference between, there's a big difference between your God, I accept what you say. I honestly don't understand it. Can you help me understand and accept this? And I'm not worshiping a God like that. Now, how many of you honestly rising up in your heart as we talk about God's sovereignty is, I am not worshiping a God like that who is merciful to whom he is merciful and who hardens whom he hardens. I will not worship that God. How many of you, that's what's rising up in you? See, Paul wants to crush that now before he even moves on. And I don't know if that's your approach to this, but I know that it is some people's. I put this, these recaps out there on my, on the church website. And I've heard some people, they're not a part of our flock here, but they've read that. And that is an exact quote from one person who has been reading this. And she has said, I have no interest in worshiping a God like that. So this is a great place for us to stop, to slow down, to examine our hearts before we continue. Because Paul's not letting up for quite a few more verses. So let's stop and examine our hearts. Do you say when you encounter difficulty like this, God, help me to understand and accept this? Or do you say, God, you better line up with what I've already decided? What's in your heart about this? Are we moldable or do we answer back? That phrase, answer back. Who are you, old man, to answer back to God? It's the same phrase used of the Pharisees when they would argue with Jesus. And he would just brilliantly destroy their arguments. And then the scripture says they couldn't answer back. They couldn't argue anymore. They had their point that they brought with them into the conversation to assert. And they were trying to answer back and argue. Are we moldable? Or do we try to answer back? And just to be clear, it's not wrong to ask these questions. It's all about the heart behind it. Let's ask like Mary, not like Zechariah. Okay? Everybody with me? I know you lost an hour of sleep last night. I know I'm talking photons and antinomy. So the big idea, remember as you go along in life and in this scripture and just in your reading of scripture, who you are and who God is. We're just, we're people. Our life is like a vapor. We're doing the best we can with this, as it's been called, a three-pound fallen brain is what we're working with. Trying to understand the divine. If God revealed himself to us too much, too abruptly, it would kill us. Remember we talked about Moses. He wanted to see God's glory and God said, I'll show you a little bit. I showed you too much. Your head would explode. That's who we are. God is is God, eternal, creator of everything. And his ways are not our ways. 
So where Paul could have released a lot of the pressure, instead, I think he had a deeper point he wanted to make. Remember in these things, God is God. He's the potter, we are the clay. Let him mold you. Don't try to mold him. Okay, let's, let's beat one more verse in here. Verse 21, he goes further. He keeps going further. He keeps making it more uncomfortable for me to bring this to you as clearly as I can. 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That is a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? What I really want to talk about in the next couple minutes, I think this is the crux of what he's getting at. The issue of rights. We love rights in America. We talk about rights all the time. Scan the headlines about the arguments of politics in our culture, and it's about rights. Who has the rights to do what with what? Now, have you noticed how when something is declared a right, for all practical purposes, it silences any other consideration of the subject? It makes any other consideration of the subject seem like hatefulness or bigotry or basically seem like a caveman. Once it's declared a right, case closed. And we see this with all types of topics. We see this with uh, same-sex marriages. Once it's declared a right, it's hard to even talk about it anymore. We see this with gun ownership. Once it's declared a right, everybody can pack it all they want. It's not even a conversation anymore. We see this with abortion. Once the, it's declared the right of the woman to choose, we can't even talk about it anymore. With uh, health care, wherever you stand on these things, I'm not getting into that right now, but think about how once something is declared a right, it absolutizes it. It's settled. Valid or invalid. So, with that in mind, what rights does God have in your mind? What rights will you allow God to have? What rights does he indeed have in reality, whether we allow it or not? What are you comfortable declaring to be God's right? Can he speak to you? Or must he only speak when spoken to? Can he command you? Or can he only suggest? Can he judge you? Or can he only pat us on the back and hope for the best? Can he direct you? Or can he only respond to you? You know, rights are not invented. They are recognized. We don't invent rights. We recognize, you know, this is this person's right. The point Paul is driving home, it's the only thing I can figure out why he is so relentless on this. I think he's just trying to drive home the point that God has the rights to be God. And as God, he has absolute rights over everything that he's created. He creates it all, he sustains it all, and he bought us with his blood through Jesus Christ. I had a 
an aunt that would wrestle us when we were kids. She was obviously a lot bigger because we were kids. I was actually way smaller because I was a little runt anyway, but I was younger than all the rest of the cousins. So she would wrestle them, and, and her thing was, say uncle, say uncle. She would pin them until they said uncle. Meanwhile, I was over cowering in the corner because I was a little terrified, a little five years younger than everybody else. And eventually they'd say uncle. I feel like Paul is just trying to wrestle us to the ground until we'll just say uncle and just accept that God is God. And that we are, in reality, at his mercy. So, just one closing thought. This may not be the uh, positive, encouraging, K-love message that you had hoped for, but it is foundational for every positive and encouraging message you ever will hear. So, my closing thought. Think back to when Moses went up on the mountain, the big beard, the teased-up hair, and the bathrobe, and he spent 40 days... Up there, God giving him the law, the Ten Commandments, etc. And down at base camp, what were the people doing? They were creating this stupid golden calf to worship. Now, I want us to, and I think this is what the Holy Spirit is instructing us to do at this point, to take a look at the God that we worship, the God that you worship as an individual. Is your God a God that can contradict you? Is your God a God big enough that he can challenge you? Is your God a God big enough that he can confound and overwhelm you? Or is he like a dumb little golden calf that you have molded to be what you want him to be? It's a very important question. And I have had to confront my own heart with this a lot wrestling through this chapter. Now, I really, really hope that you'll be back as we continue to work through this chapter. But for now, let me leave you with this. God is God, and he is good, and he's proven that to us through Jesus Christ. But he is still God. He is more God-ish than we've ever dared to imagine and that we can ever understand. He is worthy of our worship, not just trifling with him. He's not safe, but he is good. And I hope that you'll continue to wrestle through this with me. Let's pray. Father, this is, in my mind, very difficult. And on behalf of this people, I ask you, how can these things be? Help us. Help us to understand and accept. Or please search our hearts and reveal to us idolatries that are in there. Reveal to us ways that we are frantic to mold you rather than to just let go and be molded by you. Lord, you are the one true God. You are awesome and mighty and powerful in both your wrath and your mercy and your compassion. You are the one and only rightful recipient of our worship and our devotion. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you came. You came 
Like the song we sang earlier said, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.